The podcast you are about to hear tells the story of a Katsi man named Slumuk. Members of the Katsi First Nation have been instrumental in us telling the story properly. We acknowledge that the story of Slumuk originates from the ancestral lands of the Katsi people. What you're about to hear, you may find graphic and violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. The late afternoon sun descended into twilight as two men walked into the Ruskin lumber mill office. The men looked ragged, their shoes badly worn and showing the effects of walking through the tough and rugged terrain. On this crisp day in November 1911, it became apparent to the men in the lumber store that these two men had been on an arduous journey and that one of them was suffering from a serious illness. They struck up a conversation and said they had been out prospecting in the Stave Hills, just to the east of Pitt Lake, and had run out of food, but managed to make their way to Stave Falls, where they were allowed to ride on a wagon part way. Then they continued the rest of the 20-kilometer journey southeast of Pitt Lake on foot. Hungry, wet, cold, and with no money, they were hoping to get a ride into Vancouver on the first freight train that came along. Although they looked destitute, they weren't without means. And with a melodramatic flourish, one of them pulled out from his jacket pocket a buckskin pouch. He swiftly untied it, and as he did, gold nuggets cascaded across the blueprints on the drafting table below. The general manager of the local power company sprung into action and immediately made preparations for the two men to be fed and then be taken to a warm room in the hotel. The men were given new clothes and shoes from the store and received enough cash to purchase tickets on the evening train to Vancouver. As the manager arranged all of this, he was doing his best to find out where the men got their treasure. Very little was known about them other than their names were Shotwell and Harrington and that they had gone to the mountains via Pitt Lake and were now on their way to Seattle and possibly San Francisco. Before they left, they gave the manager several small nuggets as payment for what they'd received. Everyone assumed the gold came from the fabled lost mine of Pitt Lake. Shotwell and Harrington both got as far as Seattle. Upon arrival, Shotwell went into hospital and died shortly thereafter. Harrington disappeared and was never seen again. I'm Crew Williams, and this is Dead Man's Curse, Slumok's Gold. Episode 10, Dead Men Walking. I'm your guide on this journey through history, along with the rest of the team from the adventure TV docuseries, Dead Man's Curse. In this serialized investigation, I'm often joined by a host of experts and members of the Katsi and Stolo First Nations to sort fact from fiction and give Slumok a voice from beyond the veil. And if we're lucky, maybe find a bit of that infamous and possibly cursed gold. Five years after Slumok died, on August 16, 1896, gold was discovered in the Klondike region of the Yukon, bordering Alaska to the far north of British Columbia. As it happened almost 40 years earlier with the Fraser Gold Rush, some 30 to 40,000 fortune seekers from around the world streamed into the Rocky Mountain wilderness in search of a new Eldorado. Adam Palmer, my dead man's curse teammate and buddy, has done some research on the region, and he says that the lower mainland of British Columbia became a major transit point for prospectors headed north. 
The newly established railway terminus in Vancouver allowed the city to grow quickly and outpace older port cities like Victoria and New Westminster, as it became a nerve center for scores of miners and prospectors. You had several hubs of a lot of activity, a lot of pioneers, a lot of um, people basically, it was a jumping off point. And you can imagine if you get all walks of different, you know, all walks of life, all different types of people, you know, you get the, the treasure hunters, the legend hunters, the serious prospectors, the businessmen, the loggers, um, the railway workers, the, um, the power company, you know. So some of these guys, I think, stayed behind. And I don't know if they ever struck it rich in this area that we're talking about, but they definitely had rich stories. So <laughs> those stories still survive today. Many knew of the Jackson letter, which described the location of the Bonanza that awaited the lucky finder just above Pitt Lake. Many went searching. Some never came back. The story you heard at the beginning of this episode comes from the book, The Golden Mountains, Chronicles of Valley and Coast Mines, published in 1973. It's a historical analysis written by Charles A. Miller, who Adam says knew the story firsthand. Quite a pioneering family back in the day. Um, Charles Miller, being, being the son of that manager of the power company, um, grew up in the upper stave. And later in life, you know, the son wrote all the adventures, all the books. And that's when we have this mention of these two guys walking out of the upper pit, um, saying they found gold. But Charles Miller is what really brought the upper stave into the legend of the lost gold mine of Pit Lake. In Miller's story, Shotwell and Harrington were prospecting around Stave Lake, about 20 kilometers east of Pit Lake. And this was actually known to be, it's proven archaeologically that it was a trade route between all the lakes. That waterway, that trade route still existed thousands of years before Slumac. That was, you know, the glaciers created the upper stave and that upper stave drained into the Fraser eventually. That's what's fascinating about that area. Is I always call it the Bermuda Triangle because that's kind of like where if you're up there, you have to figure out where you're going. Just to give you an idea of where we're talking here, if you go east or west from Stave Lake, you're crossing glaciers to get to either Pitt Lake or Harrison Lake, both about 20 kilometers in either direction. 50 kilometers to the north, you'll end up at Buffalo Bills and Whistler. Well, when we have a story of two prospectors coming out of that area with gold, we automatically assume that what they had, you know, the clues or the the lead that they had and to go into that area was they were in possession of the Jackson letter. Um, Charles Miller mentions that they um, had a map or they had some prior insight into going there. He, there's, there's not a lot of specific information because this is, you know, picture it. This is basically a, a father telling a son the story of how he met these two prospectors, you know, many years ago. And it was probably, you know, a conversation that maybe lasted 10, 15 minutes, and then they were on their way again. Then, Shotwell died of illness, and Harrington disappeared without a trace. In many accounts, they became part of the chain of prospectors who possessed the Jackson letter and passed it on from one gold hunter to the next. But we have no real proof. We only have the story and the legend. When I had my shall we say, unexplained experience? 
Adam and I were on an expedition where we followed the clues in the Jackson letter. We are but a few of the many who have gone before us, and I haven't been the only one to feel a warning. Historian Rob Nicholson is a military veteran and author of the book Lost Creek Mine. On the TV series, he shared with me his own unexplained and terrifying experience when he went into the Pit Lake region a few years back. The last time I was in there, it's, it's very steep climbing up. Where it started to level out, where you can stand up. I stood up and in front of me about, I don't know, 50 feet in front of me was this entity that looked like an extremely thin man. And it said, retreat and live, proceed and die. I did back down and I ran out. It took me about seven hours to run out. That took me a day and a half to walk in. And I was scared. And I, wow. I was deadly sick for about six months. And I don't want to repeat that. I was, I was given a choice. I took my choice and I won't go back. Oh, man. This is a mystery that needs to be solved. If you would like to go through my research material and make your own choice, you're more than welcome to do that. But I'm not going to lead you up there because <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want anybody's death on my conscience. That fear, that essence, I felt it too when I was on the expedition. And it's hard not to think about all those who famously died looking for the lost treasure. Nika Memlus mine Memlus was the curse Lumak supposedly uttered from the gallows. When I die, the mine dies. So who were the men that went looking and never came back? For that, we turn to another expert from the Dead Man's Curse team. Daryl Friesen, I'm a gold prospector, seeker of the Lost Creek Mine, writer, author, YouTube filmmaker, and a few other things. Daryl grew up not too far from Pit Lake, and like the rest of us, he got swept up in the mystery of Slumox Gold early on in life. My interest in history, my interest in lost treasure, got sparked by watching the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark as, as a kid. My own experiences with the curse really started, well, what I'll call a curse, but sort of spiritual experiences with the place, besides a curse, like evil. Um, these things happen sooner. Things that you were like 12 years old, 13 years old, go up there, you could just sort of feel something. Right? I could really, really, really feel something that sort of, there was something there, old, spiritual, guarding the place almost, right? Prospecting is a pretty common activity, especially here in BC. And a big adventure in the backcountry might at first seem like a good idea, but if you're looking for a cursed mine, it might not always end well. That's what happened to a father and son over a hundred years ago. For that story, we travel to October 18th, 1910, almost 20 years after Slumok's execution, when the Daily Province reported that, quote, what are believed to be the bodies of George Blake of Coquitlam and his 19-year-old son, George, have been found lying crushed on the shore of Scott Lake, near where it empties into the Pitt River by two Dominion government engineers, end quote. The article went on to say that the prospectors had been missing for six months 
and it was believed that they discovered a rich vein of gold, but died when a tree fell directly across their tent. Over the next two decades, the Blake's tale was added to the list of other stories sprinkled in newspapers of folks dying, disappearing, injuring themselves, or coming up empty-handed while on the hunt for Slumox gold. A curse wasn't mentioned at the time, but evidence of something strange happening in the region mounted. Adam says the curse flew under the radar at least until 1931, when people took notice because one man made headlines when he simply vanished. Volcanic Brown is the, the heart of the legend. That's what I say. People shouldn't be after Slumax Gold. They should be after Volcanic Brown's gold. You find Volcanic Brown, you change history. So who was Volcanic Brown? You cannot get more of a famous person looking for the lost gold mine than you could have had with Volcanic Brown. He is basically, you know, if you were into prospecting, exploration, mining, um, business, Volcanic Brown was your, was your guy during that, you know, time period. And there's a lot of documentation on him, which is great because that gives us more of a direction when you're looking for the lost gold mine. I think the driving force was he heard this legend. You know, he heard a, a, this, this legend of gold in the upper pit country, you know, nuggets the size of walnuts. He was one of the first serious people to take the so-called Jackson letter and use that letter to go find gold. Back in his day, Volcanic Brown was known for his flamboyance. He wore slit eyeglasses, rocked a cane, and had a team of black horses for his carriage. He was so successful, he flashed a whole set of gold teeth. <laughs> so Volcanic wasn't some newbie when he started searching for Slumok's treasure. I think there's an article basically in 1928 that he was consecutively going up into the upper pit for over 10 years to look for gold. So he put in a lot of time. Um, the first, first instance of him going to look for the lost gold mine of Pit Lake was in the early 20s. 1924 was was his first confirmed trip. And when he came back, he wrote about it, um, talked about, you know, what he saw, what he found. He was a woodsman. He was a very fluent in, in navigation and um, very capable. So from 1924 to 1931, he's in the upper pit exploring. And all those trips weren't easy. I mean, and, and you know, he was rescued in 1926 from one of the trips. The Vancouver Sun reported on October 18, 1926, that Robert Doc Brown, which was Volcanic Brown's given name, had to be rescued. Quote, the aged prospector has been in the wild country north of Pitt Lake alone since August and should have been out before the middle of September. Brown was found lying in an old log cabin near Seven Mile Creek, 25 miles from Pitt Lake, alive, but in very low condition. He had no matches to light a fire. One foot was severely frosted and his food was almost gone, end quote. Volcanic Brown guided a few men north of the lake in search of gold and other precious metals. The 70-year-old then decided to stay back when the men returned to civilization. By the end of September 1926, police from Port Coquitlam mounted a search and finally found him two weeks later. Brown wrote about being trapped on a glacier and having to dig a hole in the ice to escape the wind and snow. 
His foot had been so badly frostbitten, he amputated his own toe before rescuers arrived. But that didn't stop him from searching for Slumok's gold again. Volcanic Brown went back into the Upper Pit Lake area many more times over the next five years, until 1931, when a severe blizzard hit the region. Adams says the prospector's camp was found near the base of Stave Glacier. Among his personal items, a glass jar with 11 ounces of gold nuggets. In 1931, he never came back. And, you know, the rescuers went out and they said it was some of the worst terrain they had ever traveled to. You know, this was a rescue operation that lasted over two weeks looking for him. So, you know, for him to just disappear like that, you know, I always think maybe he stepped into a different dimension. You know, he found the gold, but, you know, maybe he's sitting with it right now. But uh, that's why every time I go across that Stave Glacier, I rappel down into a crevasse because, you know, if he's down there, well, maybe the gold's down there. Volcanic Brown's disappearance didn't deter other prospectors. There was gold to be found. And the longer it went unclaimed, the brighter it shined in their imaginations. Over the next two decades, the foreboding terrain, weather conditions, and even stories of disappearances in the Pit Lake region didn't stop men like Alfred Gaspard. You check his backstory, it's pretty interesting. He's selling frogs back in the day to restaurants. He's probably thinking, well, maybe, you know, I should probably, uh, I need to find some gold there to keep, keep the funds coming in for my frog farm. The 60-year-old widower was from Langley, B.C., located about 40 kilometers from Pit Lake. And Adams says that in 1950, Gaspard set off to look for Slumok's treasure. There's not mention where he first hears about the legend, but you do have reports from the people that he spoke to that he was serious. He was, he was not an idiot. I mean, he knew, you know, recollections from people he hired to help him, such as helicopter pilots to get him into the pit, talk about him as being a credible prospector. Advances in technology meant that Gaspard was outfitted with more modern equipment than Volcanic Brown ever had. He had warmer clothing, a radio, and a helicopter to fly him over some of the roughest terrain, which saved him days, even weeks of effort, stress, and uncomfortable travel through canyons and glaciers. This helicopter company flies him into the upper pit and drops him off and is, you know, Three weeks go by, is not seen again, disappeared. There's another mystery, um, basically no trace of Alfred Gaspard ever again. So what we have here is, is interesting because this is the 50s and this is kind of like, it's, it's the kind of the slow, I always called it the kind of the slower period for the lost legend. There's not a lot of stuff that was going on in the 50s. You have, of course, you always have reports of people going in, but this is kind of, this was the big case because RC, the whole authorities were involved. Police went looking. Um, this is, con and it's real. It's confirmed. It seems as though Gaspard pretty much foretold his own disappearance too. Adam says he alluded to possibly going missing in a letter found after the fact. And before he left, he made sure his personal affairs were in order. The newspapers back in the day were not very good at documenting how they came across this information. But if we go on the fact that this is true, basically documented um, that 
if he went missing, don't come look for him. He's in a, you know, he obviously, it's the curse that took him. So he was actually, um, he knew a little bit about the curse and, and knew that it was, that it had this paranormal activity around it. So it was almost like he wanted to become part of the legend and have something happen to him, but I don't think he wanted to die or go missing. Uh, that didn't work out well. So maybe he didn't have good intentions, you know. Don Froze, the way shower on the team, says a person's intentions seem to be key when looking for Slumok's gold. The importance of having good intentions when going out onto the land and search for gold, a big part of that is being prepared. And a lot of these prospectors that went out with a mindset to search for gold, hunt for gold, get as much gold as they could, you know, based on the intention their intentions were based on greed, not need. They they missed some important fundamental pieces of survival on the land, and and their intentions then um, backfired on them. And that's you know a piece that has to be balanced, and it's something that we encourage all of us when we go on expeditions to you know, go with the right intentions and, and number one, be prepared. So that's, you know, physical, emotional, spiritual, and mental. And and that's the big part of um, not just survival, but living. And a lot of these prospectors, whether or not it was based on greed, in some cases it's it's just plain stubbornness. It's just, it, it may not even have anything to, with, to do with greed, but somewhere along the line, a negative human characteristic kicked in and um, got a hold of them. And, and that's, you know, that's the, unfortunately the demon that they had to deal with. Good intentions or not, what we do know is that by the 1950s, the curse of Slumok's lost mine entered the mainstream, which we'll look at in detail in the next episode. In the meantime, Alfred Gaspard, the best-known prospector to go missing since World War II, was proclaimed as the pit's 21st victim by the province newspaper in Vancouver. The article stated that after not hearing from Gaspard for several weeks, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and Forest Guides went into the upper pit to find him. Searchers spoke with the province and said, quote, It's grim, tough country. To get through the canyon, we had to walk like goats along the side of the rock. It was a sheer drop of 40 feet to the river. So far down, our eyes couldn't focus on the waters. End quote. One RCMP officer who spent five arduous days in the pit searching for Gaspard said, quote, Nothing we can say will reduce the attraction of the Lost Creek Mine. End quote. Dale Friesen, an expert on the Lost Creek Mine, says that around the same time as Gaspard vanished, Another lesser-known prospector escaped death by the skin of his teeth. Duncan McFadden was a prospect in, in the 50s who was a firm believer in the mine. He had a cabin on the, on the, on the east side of the pit, and he had took several expeditions in there. One of them, he fell, and he like, hurt his back and crawled out. According to Weekend Picture magazine, the Sunday supplement of the Victoria Times, while out prospecting, the 68-year-old McFadden tumbled off a 20-foot cliff, suffering painful injuries to his back 
and chest. He crawled for hours to reach his cabin. There, he lay unconscious for two days. He then dragged himself on his hands and knees to the lake, where his boat was moored. After six miles of painful travel, he reached a summer camp from which he was rushed to the hospital. And he proclaimed that the place was cursed and that he would never go back. And that Slumac was the one who caused his back injury. And he got, he's got a bay named after him now in sort of like the east side of the pit there, uh, McFadden Bay. And he corresponded a lot with Don Waite about his experiences. And yeah, he was a, he was a believer in the lost mind. You may remember the name Don Waite. He's the author and historian who interviewed Amanda Charnley at length about her father, Peter Pierre's relationship with Slumok. As Adam mentioned, the 50s were a relatively quiet period in terms of death and disappearance in the pit, but then the 60s came in with a bang. Daryl Friesen says that in the 60s, the pit claimed its fifth victim. 43-year-old Louis Earl Hagbo was from Washington State and was in the region prospecting with his brother-in-law when, on July 23, 1960, it was reported that his body was packed out six miles over Rockfall and down a dry creek bed to a forest access road, and then by boat down Pitt Lake. I can't say that with 100% certainty, that there was a curse that got him. He had a heart attack, right? You know, I've, I've hiked up those, I've hiked those mountains that are really steep. You're in bad shape or you're not as good a shape you think you're. You could push yourself to that point. So it's hard to just blame it, say it's a curse. But sure, curse did it. Just, just, <laughs> why not? In Hegmo's pocket, they found a package of nitroglycerin pills, indicating he had heart disease. Regardless, true of any legend, if you look hard enough at any certain point, fact and fiction get blurred. The documentation of his rescue was integral to finding a massive clue to this legend. Adam says to confirm the alleged curse is real, he looks to one of the more notable prospectors, Bernard Rover. So this is important because we have an older prospector. He is prospecting around Pit Lake upper pit um, for months at a time. He goes in, comes out. He was most likely living on a houseboat um, in the, on the Fraser or Alouette area. Um, and he would go into the upper pit in the summer, prospect, and come home. He was prospecting for month, you know, at his cabin and, and um, he had a stroke. And that's, he realized he had a stroke because he you know, he, could, he started getting tingly in his hands. He couldn't walk, couldn't feel, you know, he knew he was in trouble. Usually, you know, his route described that he actually went up, he would go up Gurney Creek, which is funny because I'll tell you this, Gurney Creek is not the name of that creek. Um, the traditional name for Gurney Creek was Slummock Creek. 1968, on his prospecting trip, he is rescued by two other prospectors that are railway workers on vacation. They're going up a, a very well-known creek, one of the kind of the, I would call it the gateway to, if you're going to go looking for the lost gold, it's, it's Vickers Creek. He got rescued by these prospectors coming up, and he was found um, in very bad shape. He couldn't walk. He basically got to where he was, rescued by crawling for days at a time. Newspapers reported that Rover crawled over a glacier and 10 miles of wilderness before he was found. 
So we have two prospectors. They rescue another prospector in 1968. And he said he, he was prospecting for months at a time at his cabin. Okay, so when I first read that, I'm like, okay, well, that's huge. Why is no one paying attention to this? This is massive. You know, he has a he has a cabin somewhere and he's been prospecting there for months at a time. He's got a mine. He must have a mine. Well, I have to agree with Adam because it's already been stated that he's been rescued by prospectors, establishing that he's a prospector. Why else would he be out in the woods for months at a time if he was he had to have found something. That's the only reason you stick out in the bush for that long. So, yeah, I can agree. If we have a cabin, we probably have a mine. He was asked, actually, the prospectors asked if they had, if he had found gold. And he never, he just said he hadn't found much. He found some copper, but, you know, he's smart, right? Why would he tell other prospectors? <laughs> These prospectors were on their way to go find gold. You know, he's not going to say, oh, yeah, just my gold's up there. Just go up there. You know, I believe Bernard Rover probably did find some gold. You know, he's up there for months at a time. Um, so he, when he had a stroke, he must've been feeling something because, you know, he's up there in his cabin, has a stroke. That's, you know, stroke, how do strokes happen, right? Stress, um, unhealthy, you know, neurological, you know, there, there's lots of factors that come into play of why someone has a stroke. So there you go. Maybe it's the curse. After Bernard Rover, there weren't many serious prospectors searching for gold near the pit. The 1970s brought the advent of big mining companies with geological surveys, helicopters, and technology that allows those searching to land for five or 10 minutes, do a survey, then leave again. Daryl Friesen says most of the adventure, the mystery, and even the danger is gone, but not completely. We were flying up over the canyon, and there was like a gust of wind. And the helicopter started shaking, and we were flying around, and you know, flying around in circles over top of the canyon. Like, eh, eh, eh. You look at the dash, the pilot starts to you know, struggle to dash, and the helicopter like drops out of the sky. Boom! You hit like the snow bank, and you start sliding down the snow, and hit a rock, and the helicopter comes to a complete stop. Headphones fly off, and you're sitting there and almost dying but surviving an actual helicopter crash event, the gust of wind and stuff like that and along, along those. That was my first... That was... That felt like being knocked out of the sky by Slimak himself. He slapped out of the sky. That felt like, no, you shouldn't be here. Right? That was what made me think of it in, in that way. I was like, you want to write it off and say there's no curse, there's nothing to it, it's all you have is just a gust of wind? What was it? Was it? Was that? That was like sort of my first feeling that there might actually be truth to the curse. With all the modern technology that we have to search for the gold, and with no high-profile deaths or disappearances attributed to the curse in decades, would you believe in the curse? Yes, I do. I believe in the curse. Yeah. Just from my own experience, <laughs> I didn't at one point. At one point, I was like, you. That, that person that's like, no, oh, curse, no, no such thing as a curse, it's just nonsense, right? No, and it's older. I think there's something up, I think there's something up there that's older than Slumac. It's not to him, it's something else, but it's older, more ancient. 
And, you know, I've got that, that feeling when I've been up there. That there's just something more ancient than Slumac. Waiting. Like Daryl Friesen, I've had my own chilling experience in the pit. It was something I can't explain. A ghostly finger pressed on my lips. Don Froze told me to listen. But listen to what? Daryl says the answer might be in what we're doing. To go deeper and try to find the truth. The press wanted to slumack the killing, the raging psychotic native guy who killed people and threw them into the lake and they wanted him to have killed several people and then rushed to the gallows and hung right because of the story not because they didn't want truth they wanted a story truth are we getting closer to it or are the stories leading us farther and farther away the Daily Columbian was responsible for accusing him of murder and of being insane right off the top. And that was fundamentally wrong. So when it came time for the court case, the jury pool, if you will, was quite contaminated. And what about the words? The actual curse? What about Nika Memlus, my Memlus? When I die, the mind dies. A lot of people in their journalism if, or in their journalistic uh, exploits, if you will, simply repeat what has been uh, reported in earlier things, in earlier books, uh, in earlier magazine articles or whatever, uh, without trying to follow through on threads and, 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 uh, and correct things. All this and more, as we uncover the truth and the stories behind The Dead Man's Curse. I want to thank you for joining me. And special thanks to my friend Adam Palmer, Dale Friesen, and Brian Anderson for their work on this episode. Dead Man's Curse, Slumox Gold is written by Ernest White II and Dila Velasquez. Our producers are Jessica Young and Dila Velasquez. Editing and sound design by Rob Johnston and Rosalind Kofor. Our associate producers are Valerie Hold Mershon and Gail Starr. Our Indigenous Cultural and Heritage Consultant is Gail Starr. Our executive producers are Chris Duncombe, Ernest White II, Michael Francis, Tim Hardy, and David Way. Dead Man's Curse is a curious cast and great Pacific media production. 